At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Ben Heath. You could call him the director, CEO, the owner of Deerbox in the UK. What Deerbox is, is, is this, this commodity product that comes out of the wild. It's wild harvest venison in the UK. And they essentially have created this box that they sell to the UK. Unfortunately, they do not sell to the US, given the strict meat importation rules. But I wanted to talk to Ben not about Deerbox, but rather about... Deer management, hunting, hunting perspectives in the UK, and how what he does feeds into this great organization called the Country Food Trust in the UK, and how they're creating venison for uh, venison meals, pheasant meals, just meals in general from wild harvested game for the needy. It's the exactly the type of conversation that I like to have on these podcasts because it's something you've never heard of from someone you've never heard of in a place that you probably have never heard of. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is <laughs> Does my hair look okay? My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a nonprofit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. <laughs> hey, this is, you know what I love about, um, what I love about the Blood Origins platform is that I get to engage with people that love this lifestyle that we do everywhere in the world. Like literally, when you yeah. called me five minutes ago, I was on the call. I was on a, a Teams call with the CEO. I guess his his title is CEO Director of the Finnish Game Foundation. Wow, cool, amazing. 
so that's a that's a nice setup that you have. You got you a separate reloading room, um, twenty have, yards from the I house. Have, yeah, we, we we live in a cottage, so it's it's not the biggest of houses. So um, unfortunately, in the UK, we we have this wonderful thing called extremely expensive property. Yes, yeah, right. And, uh, where I live is about forty miles west of London, which means I'm in really expensive property. Uh, and uh, although I've lived here for a long time, when property wasn't expensive, all the Londoners have moved out and it's now really expensive. So, uh, yeah, we're kind of like trapped where we are, but we were in a lovely location. And um, so, yeah, when I needed a bit more room for all my reloading and all my shooting gear and my wife was getting unhappy with how much rubbish was in the house, <laughs> it was like, right, I'll build myself an insulated pod. So I have this little room where I can go and I can leave all my stuff and it's great. That is fantastic. That is fantastic. Well, Ben Heath, um, a lot of people obviously listening to this and saying, man, this guy's got not as cool an accent as the South African host, but a pretty good accent. Ben Heath, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. How are you today? Thank you. I'm very well, thank you. Uh, for people, just give them an introduction of who you are and what you do, Ben, and, and why I've decided to have you on the Blood Origins podcast. Okay, I will do. Well, I'm, I'm not sure why you want me here, but I can tell you certainly about what I, I do and I, I, I run. So um, I'm a, a, a keen hunter. I have been for a long time and um, I've been very fortunate to work alongside uh, Mike Robinson, who many of you may know from the Outdoor Channel and Farming the Wild. And he and I, for the last six or seven years, have managed a large area of land in the UK. The UK is very different to America and many other nations in as much as that we don't have any public land. Everything's private. And as such, um, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to go hunting unless you have permission on that landowner's land. And it normally gets locked into a person or an organisation or something. So he and I actually... Uh, manage over 35,000 acres of private land between the two of us. Wow. Um, and it's uh, predominantly or has been predominantly uh, wild fallow deer, wild roe deer. And, you know, the one that really intrigues everybody in the States is the wild muntjac, mm -hmm. um, those little doggy deer with the, with the fangs. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we, we were running a small venison business out of one of our larders supplying Mike's restaurants and um a few other exclusive restaurants and when covid came it kind of upset everything and it, it made us review what we were doing with our with our venison supplies and what we were going to do with our venison because again in the uk it's very different you know we can sell our venison right to restaurants the public you know we you know and so and because of there's no public land hunting personally i shoot between 150 and 200 deer a year mm. No, it's a, it's a, just a completely different ballpark. Ben, the whole so, COVID scenario with venison is is a fascinating thing in the UK, and a lot of, you know, a lot of people would be like, a, a, "What I just heard you say, and, and I've heard it before, is that the the venison market almost tanked a little bit, right?" Yeah, it did. So um, essentially, the the venison market traditionally was that most of our venison, seventy five percent, would get exported to France, Belgium, and Germany. For restaurants or for personal consumption uh, of grocery restaurants, stores? Yeah, restaurants, mainly restaurants in, on the continent. And due to varying reasons in, on the continent, uh, that model changed. Um, well, nobody was going out to restaurants, right? Essentially, well, yeah, during COVID. Before, 
Yeah, but this is before COVID. So they ah. started shooting more of their own animals. They waged war on their own forest due to Greenpeace and mm. Greens wanting more trees. So they want less deer, less boar, less everything. So that market was already suffering. Then we had Brexit. And then just to sort of like completely throw um, every ounce or every bucket of water on the fire, COVID came along. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it really, really caused a situation. And so we review, had to review what we did. And we sold, we had 30 deer in the in the chillers when, when lockdown occurred. And Mike luckily had some chefs that all had no work. So they all came down and butchered all these deer up and basically sold it online. And it all went within a week. It was just gone, you know, but you, everybody was trying to buy food. But right. it made us think, what could we do in the future? And lockdown isn't going anywhere soon. You know, we got to June, July, it started to open up. But Mike was very clever in, in saying, look, I think there's going to be another lockdown, which there was at Christmas. Mm-hmm. And I think that our restaurant trade is going to be very problematic. So we ought to look at other options. So I decided to look into maybe creating a box business selling venison to the public. And um, a week or two later, I came up with Deerbox. And um, a week later, I'd built a website, bought a domain name, did all the bits. And on the 1st of August, when hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt, whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings for just about everything for shooting hunting and the outdoors check out midwayusa.com and the fallow deer season it launched and two two years later we have a business with a, a 400 square meter processing plant last season just gone we processed about just over 1600 wild deer um which is a fair number um mm-hmm. it's not the biggest amount um, and it's growing and we supply some of the best restaurants in the UK, some of the best restaurants in London. And we send out about two and a half to three thousand boxes to the public every year as well. Um, and we've created a, and we've created a business and it's growing and it's becoming cool. You know, there's this real negativity about certain game meats as pheasant, because in this country, we we rear pheasants for shooting. Sure. Whereas with deer, it's a wild problem. And we have more deer in the UK than we've ever had. You know that they quote. Yeah, I think you've got. Million. Yeah, you've got more. You've got more deer in the UK right now than than pre-colonial times. Oh yeah, pre-Roman. You know, I mean, it literally, it's going back that far, and and they don't know what the figure is. They they bounce two million around, mm-hmm. and they keep using this figure, but they've been bouncing that figure around for for sort of five six years. Um, and and we know that if if a deer population is undisturbed it will increase in size by 30 to 40% a year. Yep. So assuming that there was some deer control, over two years, the likelihood is we've had a 50% increase. And that's due, you think it's due, due to the, all those factors that you just described that a lot of, maybe to our audience that aren't very familiar with the British hunting system, you did mention zero public land so it's all falls on private land hands do you think those private land people just were like we're not going to kill any deer because there's no market for the deer the deer stalkers were like "Mm, i can't sell the deer so that's why you've seen over the last two years almost the the doubling of the population potentially yeah 100 percent. there's multiple reasons but yes you 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 
you've highlighted those exactly. So one one reason is that yes, so you'll you'll get land that is held up by one or two deer stalkers that will shoot a hundred to two hundred a year themselves, or fifty or whatever, and they will say, well, my game dealer is either paying too little for them, so therefore it's not my my time to go out. One reason. Um, uh, or uh, the landowner saying, well, I'm not going to let you shoot them if we're only going to get that much money. I'd rather see them walk around the field. Um, and then there's also leisure stalkers that actually have been deer stalking, but due to the increase in numbers are not actually doing any more than they have done for the last 10 or 15 years. Mm. And they've never done enough. And so what you have is an exponential problem that's becoming out of control. Mm. And on our land, we've increased our cull figures um, on the basis that that we know that there are more around and less being shot, and I'm still seeing more deer every year, and I'm yeah. talking about going from eighty to hundred and twenty on one plot. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking yeah. about bump. Ben, isn't this an opportunity in the UK? Because the UK, from a hunting community perspective, has this moniker of it's almost a is a class based system, right? Your general hunter who wants to hunt because of the lack of public lands, cannot hunt. Isn't this an opportunity to, I don't know if it's not to spell, and I'm sure there's obviously a ton of logistics associated with it, but it just almost sounds like, feels like there's opportunity for hunters in the UK that may not have been there before. Oh, 100%. And I mean, so we, we classify our hunting slightly differently in as much as that we have you have small game hunting with shotguns. Mm-hmm. You've got your bird, your driven shooting, which is very much your class. You know the driven grouse, the driven mm-hmm. pheasants. I mean that's expensive, man. I mean you're talking, you know, forty to seventy pound a pheasant. Damn. Yeah. And then and then and then so you shoot three hundred of those in a day between two of you. Yeah, you work the figures out. It's not a cheap sport. You know, grouse is probably 200 pound a brace 250 a brace i'm not sure what the exact figure wow, is. i know it's expensive i think it, you know you're talking lots of money um so yeah very much so it's like tweed jackets land rovers beaters in the field that sort of thing you've then got rough shooting which actually isn't so much of a class system but it, it's the, the big issue is is trying to get land and and from a personal mm-hmm. perspective you know i've been hunting i mean i'm 40 what am i now 44 something like that can't remember 44 um and I started deer stalking when I was 16. And I only got proper access to quality land when I was 36. Wow. And up until that point, I was reliant on paid stalking. Yeah, where I'd pay somebody to go out and they would take me on their land as a guest. And that's yep. not cheap either. You know, you're talking, you know, their outing fee, plus maybe if you shoot something. I mean, luckily, we haven't got any tagging systems over here. So management is purely down to the individual and how they run the land. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, uh, there are opportunities. That, and we actually, as, a, as, a, as an organization, so because we manage now nearly 50,000 acres now, and we've even got land with wild boar and Chinese water deer and seeker. So we, we have five species of deer and wild boar on our ground across the south of England on in the various patches that we manage. And what we actually do is we run syndicates on them. So we know that we don't, we can't, or we can shoot all the deer if we want to. But what we do is we actually create a syndicate where guys can pay an annual fee. Yeah. And they then have the opportunity to access that land 365 days. Yeah, it's almost year. like a deer lease in the United States. 
Yeah. And so they they are having access. They've got the professional backup from us. If there's a problem, we've got tracking dogs. We've got all the bits, all the gear and no idea kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we can support them, but they they can go out without having to worry about deer management and how many they need to go. They can just enjoy it. So mm. we very much run this. So to, to, and, and, you know, firstly, it gives us some additional income to run the business and to keep management sure. going and give the landowner a good return on the land for the lease. Um, but also it, it gives access to those that couldn't. Do you know what I mean? And it's Oh, nice. no, totally you know, get what you mean. Totally get what you mean. And it's a wonder that the UK private landowner hasn't done more of this. Yeah, I think there's always an issue about access, how many people are accessing, um, you know, who's monitoring things. And, and the reality is, is that we are quite unusual in as much as that not all of the land or a lot a very small percentage of land for deer is actually given to deer management businesses really the majority is either tied up between an individual who might be just enjoying it for himself mm -hmm. and he's just you know got a very haphazard agreement with the landowner and then because we've got a lot of commercial pheasant shooting, quite often the gamekeeper is in control of the deer stalking and he keeps it in his back pocket. Mm. And so we, we, there is no set rule or, 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 or structure for, for, for how things are run. What would you think the percentage of that would be, Ben? Is that you're talking 50% of the land is in that, that latter system that you were describing? More? I reckon more than yeah. Wow. Yeah, more. I don't know the figure, but yeah, more than I would say. And then you've got land where landowners don't want the deer shot. Mm -hmm. They just want to see them, and they they're not worried about the damage the deer do, and they're not worried about what the damage do to the deer do to their neighbour's land. You know, even ben, though the neighbour's land might be suffering. Ben, is the is the um the general sentiment? Uh, coming into England like it is in Scotland right now, you know, I've had a couple of good conversations with folks in Scotland about deer management and there's a, a sentiment growing of a real desire to reduce deer populations dramatically. Is that sentiment uh, coming into the UK as well? It, it's coming. Into England, sorry, not the UK. Yeah, England. No, England and Wales. Yeah, no, you're cool. Um, yeah, I mean, Scotland is a very sad situation. Um what we've experienced over the last five plus years, which I'm sure you've already alluded to, is the fact that um, the government have, have, again, like I mentioned in Germany and France, that especially Germany, they're waging war on the deer. You know, it's more trees, green policies. You know, we're going to put all of our eggs into this green basket. And basically, we want less deer. And um, it's resulted in a bit of a sad situation where, um, you know, they don't really, the people that are making these decisions don't understand the deer. Now, we actually have got a very valid problem in the UK. In certain areas, the numbers of fallow deer are at ridiculously high levels. Um, and there are no natural predators in this country. The only predator to a deer is old age and a car. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're mm -hmm. the two one things. And so without the human intervention of managing them and harvesting them, there is no control apart from hitting them with a car on the road or, as I say, dying of old age. Yeah. Um, and there, there is no lack of food issue. We're in a temperate and mild climate. 
you know, the crops are still growing. You know, they planted their winter crops and they're growing at the mm -hmm. moment. They're getting greener and greener and they won't stop growing probably till end of November, early December. And there's so much food for them. If we if I shoot a doe in in January, she's got half an inch of fat on her back. It's amazing. You no, know, that there is no issues with them that they, they, you know, that they, they, they have no problems in. And then, you know, there's so much available food. So we have a problem in the south of England, especially or in certain pockets of the UK. The problem is now is that, again, like in Scotland, the government are getting hold of it. And now they're saying, right, well, we need to manage this in a way. We need to deal with this. So they're now airing about ideas of paying people to shoot deer. They're eyeing about the ideas of shooting deer at night without license and with thermals, um, all sorts of things. And that's bringing in some major concerns with some of the big public bodies. They're really going, hmm, this is not great. You know, this is going to cause issues. There's going to be no control. Um, so. Yeah, it, it, we are in we're in challenging times at the moment where if this is if this is mistaken or taken the wrong way, the deer actually no longer going to be regarded as an asset. They're going to be mm -hmm. regarded as this pest and, and they're only gonna, and they're going to suffer. Does Scotland have the same um, sort of venison food chain system as England like you're involved in? Yeah, very similar. I mean, the, the majority of the game system in this country is that we've got about 20 to 30 game dealers and there are about seven or eight which are really big. Mm. Um, so in Scotland, you've got one which is handling probably in excess of three to four hundred thousand carcasses a year. So um, they're really, really turning it over and, and, and they're exporting their they're buying venison in from New Zealand as well. They're, they're doing all sorts of stuff. They are really big players. We are very small, really, in comparison. Why would, um, why would the UK be importing venison from New Zealand with the frickin' amount <laughs> of resource you have on the landscape? Are you ready to get bored? Um, <laughs> like, it doesn't make uh, any sense. You would think it would even be cheaper. It's right there. No, no, but it's not because... It, it, uh, so the New Zealanders can obviously... The New Zealanders, sorry, can obviously produce farmed venison cheaper than we can produce wild. There's also the... How um, is that possible? How is that possible? Because you're not paying for the wild venison. Let's be honest. Well, we do pay. I mean, we we do pay our we do pay our um stalkers for venison. So I mean, we we pay a, a set price per kilo. Oh, okay, okay, depending okay. on carcass condition. So it's not like we take it for nothing. You know, the stalkers want money for it. Mm -hmm. Um, and and there is additional trimming with wild deer, whereas with a farm deer, you maximise yield because it's obviously having the captive bolt through put through the back of the head rather than, you know, your carcasses are cleaner. Um, and then over here, we have this issue that if you want to sell something through a supermarket, they have much tighter constraints and they will not sell wild venison. But they'll sell New Zealand venison. Yeah, because it's wild. It's because it's farmed. And they'll, they'll take British venison if it's taken through an abattoir. So there are, is a market for park and farm deer in this country that will go to supermarkets. Mm -hmm. So all of our wild deer that go into the into the system via what we call AGHEs, which is an authorised game handling establishment like us, all of our carcasses get inspected by a ministry vet or a meat inspector. Everyone's stamped, just like you've got USDA or, yep. you know, in America or various, yep. you know. Um, and so... And uh, if there's anything not right with the carcass, damage from bullets, etc., all of that has to be cut away and cleaned off. You know, none of that's allowed to go in. 
Um, so all of that meat will either go to public consumption or into the restaurant industry or market garden, you know, um, farmers markets, that sort of thing. But the supermarkets will not take it. They, their HACCP plans and their their um, food safety strategies will not allow wild venison into the system. So, yes, we are exporting while we're importing. And venison hasn't been that popular in the UK. It's created a bit of a stigma um, in the last sort of 20, 30 plus years to, for being strong tasting and tough and everything else. Everything that it's not. I mean, fallow deer is absolutely, as a meat, epic. Um, it, it's just truly wonderful. And um, uh, But, but it, it, it's trying to break through that mould. And that's what Deerbox is trying to do. We're trying to educate our customers and show them that they can cook it like beef or lamb. They could just use it like an everyday meat for making a spaghetti bolognese or a, you know, whatever they'd want to, basically. Um, if they're using beef mince or using beef steaks or using diced beef or shoulders or whatever it is, you can create that dish using venison instead of beef or lamb. And that makes sense. The whole deer box scenario now makes sense, right? That you're almost, you've created a, is it almost like a direct-to-consumer type product, right? Yeah, and they can they, they can link themselves to where it's coming from, the people that are harvesting it. Yeah, that's completely what we've done. We've created a link with the end consumer and the hunter. Ben, tell me a little bit about how the, sort of the Country Food Trust plays into this whole scenario, because obviously I got connected to you by Ian Berry, and yeah. I, I I love the idea of the Country Food Trust, and and it really makes makes sense what you just talked about, right? You've talked about you have a a, yeah, a phenomenal deer population that can serve the needy, right? That can serve the people who are on hard times with some phenomenal protein. Exactly. So yeah. So the 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 Country Food Trust was formed around approximately eight years ago if I'm right in saying and the original setup of it was to actually find a home for all these pheasants and partridges that get shot on game shoots in thousands and thousands with no market and um, they provided this meat in either two ways they made their own pouches up which could be distributed so they make like a, a pheasant casserole mm -hmm. and it's an ambient pouch. So once it's made, it sits in this packet, which can be stored at ambient temperatures. It can be held for a year in this packet and it can be eaten cold or heated up. So it was great for supplying to homeless people. It was great for put, giving out in food banks. It was a, this great, really, really clever product that could be utilized. And then they were also supplying fresh or frozen meat to bigger food banks that could actually cook their own food. Um, and there's a big one in London called the Phoenix Project. And, and, and they, they take hundreds of kilos at a time and, and, and turn it into dishes to give, to, give out to the, to the needy. What then happened about uh, four, four or so years ago is that they started looking at venison because one of the big issues is, is lead. And yep. pheasants are shot with lead shot. And so a lot of these needy people are young children and so they were like well in an ideal world we don't really as much as it's great and it's free and it's cheap or it's great to give to these people because it's free for them we're not actually doing the children any favors with 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 birds that are lead shot and they do their very best to make sure it's all out there and to be honest lead shot is not that harmful but deer were starting to be shot with lead free ammunition mm -hmm. 
So all of a sudden, venison was this way to provide a really good protein. And venison as a protein, as we all know, is a superfood. You know, it's it's high in all the essential minerals, iron and zinc and selenium. And it's, you know, it's 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 got a higher carbohydrate factor. Or sorry, um, it's got a, a, a high calorie factor, not carbohydrate. It's right. low in carbs, zero carbs. Um, but it's got high calories. So it's a great protein to feed people. Low in fat. All the fats it's got are the ones that we should be eating. So they latched onto this. And, and, and actually, in the restaurant world, most of the chefs don't want to buy whole carcass. We, 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 we encourage chefs to take whole carcass. But what they really want is saddles and haunches. <laughs> so as a, as a processor, we end up with all this shoulder meat and all this belly meat and all this trim. Yeah. And so in deer box, it's OK because we're turning it into burgers, sausages, right. coftas, mints, all sorts of stuff that our consumer then buys at home. But actually, in the more broader sense of the game dealers that are really focusing on on restaurants, they end up with this absolute ton of trim. And so the Country Food Trust were able to go out to these these processors and say, look, we will buy all your trim. Yeah, and we will convert that into a protein and they do this amazing venison bolognese in this ambient pouch. And that's what they did. And as bird shooting is becoming slightly more of a taboo subject or it's having slightly more issues and now that we've got bird flu and all the other stuff going on venison is really their core product that they want and actually i was with mike yesterday and um sj from the country food trust um we launched a a new project called the wild venison project and what this project is all about is recognizing these numbers that you and i have been talking about in deer populations and encouraging restaurants to take more whole carcass and to regular regularize venison on the menu because at the moment it's often the special it's mm. the we'll put it on for this week only mm. what we want them to do is actually make the normal beef burger a venison burger right we want the the pie that they have to be a venison pie and then what we also want them to do is at the end of the bill when people put their tips in and they say thank you very much we've had a wonderful evening is give people the opportunity to actually donate some money directly to the Country Food Trust. Oh, that'd be amazing. Because what we say is that, that one pound feeds one person for one day. And that's assuming that the Country Food Trust have to go out and buy the venison mints. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, we as a business are now starting to donate some excess trim to the Country Food Trust. So we're just giving them tr- trim that we can afford to give them. And that's helping. And if we get more and more of that going on with processors, then actually that one pound suddenly stretches a lot further. Yeah. Yeah. And what's also happening is we've got landowners that are saying, actually, I don't want to sell my venison to someone like Deerbox. What I want to do is I want to give it to the Country Food Trust. Mm. Okay, Because as, a, as an estate business, they get taxable allowances for giving to charities. And, you know, the, the reality is 100 deer is worth, I don't know, five grand in the fur, maybe 5,000 quid, okay. maybe not quite so much as that. Let's say three and a half grand. And so these 100 deer, actually, no, it would be about five grand. These 100 deer, five grand on an estate that might be turning over five or six million really is not that important. Mm-hmm. Yeah? But mm-hmm. actually for them to then donate that to charity would be great. Yeah. 
So yeah. we're now looking into ways where we can work with the Country Food Trust and process these deer for them as well. And that means the cost of the protein goes down even more. Yeah. And, and that means that this one pound will stretch even further to maybe even two or three meals a day. Mm, mm. Yeah. And so then when that person donates three or four pounds in a restaurant, they're not feeding three or four people. They're feeding 12. Mm. So it's just looking at all these different ways that, you know, us in the Country Food Trust, Mike Robinson, myself, all the other ambassadors can work to sort of really start to get the message out to the public that venison is a fantastic food. It's really good for us and we need to regularize it in our diets. And if we do that, we'll solve the deer issue in this country. Yeah. We might even create another issue in as much as there might not be enough deer. <laughs> the numbers under control and then there'll be less to harvest yeah and then there's the other issue then is also the fact that doing all of this and by being aware of all of this we're actually then also helping a charity as well that so far has fed well over 10 million people no it's an incredible charity i'm a, i'm a huge fan of the country food trust and I'm a huge fan of those ambient pouches it's such a smart way to create meals that then can be sort of sit on the shelf and be ready for anyone to pick up anyone to use anyone to cook and eat um yeah and i think you you're right you know hopefully with the right amount of balance when it comes to management yes you've got a deer population that's the highest it's ever been um, and surely you don't want to be on the other end of the spectrum in which you're short a deer um, or two because, you know, that many deer have been taken. But, you know, the likelihood of getting to that scenario, Ben, you're probably better than, versed in the, than I am, you know, with a with an annual growth rate of 30% or 40%. It's probably unlike, and with all the, as you said, with all the landowners, 50% or more that are, almost on the other side of the spectrum from what we've been talking about today, it seems like it's a very renewable resource. Yes, it is, 100%. And it's a very acceptable resource as well. I mean, you know, we, we're all aware of the, the influences of certain organisations and vegetarianism and veganism and anti-hunting and, 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 you know, various things. And some of them are social problems, other, you know... Are, you know, let's not get into the, the whys and wheres. But what we've found is actually I've got vegetarians buying from us. And I've got vegans buying from us as well. And they're, you know, people that have realized that actually a bit of protein in their diet is a good thing. Hmm. Um, I've got a couple of vegans that have made themselves very ill because they can't, their blood group prevents them from processing these pea proteins and soya proteins and everything else. And so when they nearly killed themselves and gone and seen a dietitian and a specialist they've been told you need to eat some meat and that's a real difficult one for someone like in that position isn't it of you know course. well i've made this choice to not eat meat and you know in some ways I, I don't always get vegetarians but i do get vegans i understand the principles do you know what i mean not utilizing animals incorrectly and with all some of the intensive farming that we have in this world i can i can fully understand it and i can respect it and so when they then look around and they say, well, look, if I've got to eat a protein, let it be a wild protein. Let it be a protein that's actually had to be harvested for management and environmental reasons. And actually, then I'm not wasting that product either. I'm, I'm, I'm helping to be part of the solution. 
And and that's what's happened. We've had vegans that have turned around and said, yeah, I, I, I feel comfortable doing this. And then they've eaten it and gone, man, this tastes great as well. <laughs> I actually enjoy eating it. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's been it's been fantastic. And, you know, because of our deer management links and the fact that we hunt as well, we've even had one of them turn around and say, I want you to take me out. That's I amazing. Want, I want to shoot my own deer. <laughs> I want to do it myself. Will you then show me how to butcher it? And we've been, yeah, of course we will. Of course we'll help educate. It's amazing. It's amazing. I, uh, I, one of my favorite podcasts that I've ever done is with a, uh, you might have heard about her in the UK. She's an artist, a phenomenal artist in the UK, Katie Hargreaves. Have you heard of her? I have, yes, yeah. So she was a vegan in, in her lifestyle choices, and she went out deer stalking with Oh gosh, I can't remember his name. Paul Childerly, wasn't it? Yeah, it was with yeah, with Paul Childerly. Yeah, That's right. And um, you know, she she hunted. I, I I can't believe what it was. Um, was it? I remember it. it was a Chinese water deer. Yeah, a Chinese water deer, and she shot it. And the question I posed to her is like, she didn't. I don't think she ate the meat of that animal. But I said, if you were to eat the meat, and given your principles of veganism. And the reason you were okay hunting that animal was for the health of the population, because by removing that individual, you essentially help the population from a health perspective. Does that violate any of the vegan principles about eating meat? And she said no. Exactly. Exactly. That and and I, I fully understand that. And, and so that, I, that's why I said earlier, I, I get vegans. I get their principles because actually they make sense. I don't necessarily agree with everything, but do you know what I mean? And, I, I, you know, I, I believe that farming has got a place and the farming of animals has got a place in certain areas. You know, there are lands that, that you can't farm for other things. And we, in fact, you know, have recently started doing beef at Deerbox and we buy regenerative beef off hillsides that cannot be farmed for anything else. So it's utilizing the land and they're in conservation grazing, which is good for insects. It's good for good for the fauna and the flora. And so, you know, all of these things can work. So, yeah, no, it 100 percent. And that that's what this is all about. And if we we can get that message out there and all of a sudden hunting is. Wild hunting becomes cool. It becomes very connecting and understanding. And, and we get very negative. We get very little negative feedback from anybody about what we do. Oh, I can imagine. It's 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 a perfect. It's a it's a it's not a perfect story. It's a great story, right? You've got a a massive deer population. You're providing good, healthy, organic venison via a direct to consumer market, and you're engaged in you know any additional excess of of trim, as you mentioned, any potential additional carcasses being funneled into a system like the Country Food Trust that is feeding those that are of need in the United Kingdom or in England. Um, yeah, so. yeah, in, the, oh, well, in fact, actually, recently, the Country Food Trust just sent about five, I think it was, it was, a, it was a lorry load of um, pouches to the Ukraine. When, when that first exodus of people left the Ukraine and they were all in, you know, in, literally on the borders, and the Country Food Trust sent out lorry loads of these pouches. So that they had food when they got to the border. Amazing. 
Amazing. You know, so we had British venison feeding people that really, really did need it. <laughs> All because of hunting, Ben. All because of hunting. All because of our wonderful wild resources that we have that so many people have become disconnected to. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So many good stories, so many good benefits and consequences because of the action of hunting. We just do a terrible job of telling them, Ben. <laughs> well, yes. Well, the thing is, it gets missed. You get, you know, you only need a picture of, you know, oh, of some course. Yeah, yeah. man or woman, you know, stood over a lion or whatever it is. And, and people don't look at the story. They don't look at the benefit of all of the conservation work that that animal has now provided. They don't see that. All they see is this image, which you know, which then taints their entire view for, and they become completely um, closed off, um, impermeable to any form of discussion or reasoning. Absolutely. And that's the whole point of Blood Origins, is that we're just yeah. trying to push that different message about who we are, right? That different, express that co- benefit, express the consequence Push that as our message. That is the, the, the torch in which we should be bearing. Yeah, I mean, you know, my, I've got three boys, my wife. We all eat venison. We eat venison three, four times a week. Hunting in this family. And my boys don't do it very often, actually, and I don't really try to push them. My, my youngest is the sort of most enthusiastic, but that might grow out as computers sort of become more within his life. But um, I know it has been with the others. But at the same time, what I do and what we do is normalised. You know, they'll be packing meat, you know, when we when I butcher one for home. They, they've got no uh, fears, no anxiety over anything I do. And, you know, when I look at most hunters, most hunters are calm, collected, polite, helpful, mm-hmm. charitable, you know, we get to connect with, with nature and, and, you know, I... I you know, I believe that there is some sort of spiritual, you know, thing out there. When we're out there, you feel it. You know what I mean? And you take someone out there that's never been out before and they get it. Afterwards, they get it. You know, they squeeze the trigger or not and they get it and they go, wow, this is something amazing. And, you know, we, we, you get all these assumptions about hunters that we're, you know, nasty, bloodthirsty. We have no, you know, the number of animals, even when I'm culling, you know, and when we're culling, we have to be quite ruthless. You know, it's um, we don't stop at one. If the if the herd stop, you know, the my as my my uh, Mike will always laugh and joke and say that you know the thing that normally prevents me from shooting is bullets. Um, and the mm. magazine capacity. Um, and the the but but we still are very selective. You know, and if we see an injured animal that 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 might have been hit by a car or whatever, you know, there's the compassion. We don't want to see anything suffer. Right. Uh, but yet there's this whole viewpoint from the non-hunter towards the hunter that we are something that they've envisaged that we're not mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. very hard to break well we're gonna we're gonna keep trying my ben we're gonna keep trying every single every single day we're gonna try and push well, that message well. and uh you know lots of people like you guys and I, you know, to me, the tide is turning. I think the tide is turning everywhere in the world and that there is a realization from the hunting community and hunters that there's a lot more to be said about what we do and how we do it and who we are. And, you know, 
people like you, um, you know, shining an example on, on what you do and how you do things is, is it, you know, a little bit, everyone's an influencer in this world, Ben. It just, it, the, the degree of influence is just the difference. And yeah. yeah. So no, thank you. I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's it's well, it's something I love. That's that's you know, if you love what you do, then it's easy, isn't it? Hundred percent. Ben, where can people find you? Find more information about uh, you and what you do, and what you and Mike are doing. So, uh, basic. Well, we have our website, um, which is uh, dearbox.co.uk. Um, that's where information can be found about us and, and the business that we operate. Um, from uh, from a, an ability of actually seeing what Mike's doing, he's got a great Instagram. I think it's um, uh, Chef Mike Robinson. Um, please look him up. You can also see more about us on Farming the Wild, which is on the Outdoor Channel. Um, there's now four episodes up there, and Mike's also done some fantastic uh masterclass cookery courses as well for venison and wild game which can also be found up there there are it's a separate show i think it's a wild game masterclass um and uh you'll occasionally see me just uh in the background on certain various episodes i'm probably <laughs> getting in the way um, <laughs> I, I keep it low key i just do the hunting nice um and yeah, run, run the venison business. You can um, just tell Mike, you can be famous, Mike. I don't want you, yeah, you be out I front. mean, I, I do have a, I, I've got Ben Heath Deer on Instagram as well, but I'm, I'm not very good at all this social stuff. I'm too busy doing my various bits and bobs. Um, I ought to do more really with it, but uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm more in the bowl than looking down on the bowl. <laughs> Last question, Ben, the most important question of this entire podcast. Do you dress as well as Mike does? No. I don't know how he does it. <laughs> He's always he so put, put together, man. I was like, come on, oh, Mike. Come on. He's got a bin liner on him and he looks so, you know, like this. Yeah, it's no, that I salt and pepper beard, I think, that gives him that distinguished <laughs> look. You know, salt and pepper beard, what he wears. You know, I hope Mike is listening to this. And <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he will at some stage. He will do, I'm sure, and it will make him laugh. You know, just every time, and he, you know, whatever he puts on, and you know, it's uh, we take the mick, but it, or it, and it's that leather. Have you seen me? Look out for him in that sort of. It's like a a reddish brown leather gilet. And it just, but he always does it. He always pulls it off. Yeah. <laughs> well, Ben Heath, I am a, 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 again, a big fan of, of what you guys are doing in the UK. Um, what you, the message you're putting out for hunting and hunters. Uh, if there's anything we can do beyond this podcast uh, to help with the message, um, please, you've got my, you've got my email now and you've got my number. Uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. No, well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, thank you very much. You're welcome. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. One of the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. 
Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.